Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Carly Jane Brucha was born on Long Island, New York on March 16, 1992 to parents Susan Sharpen and Joe Brucha. After her parents divorced in 1993, Carly moved to Florida with her mom, but would still spend time with her father in Long Island during long breaks from school. At the age of 11, she lived in Sarasota, Florida with her mother, half-brother, and stepfather, Stephen Kanzler, on McIntosh Road and was a sixth grader at Sarasota's McIntosh Middle School. On Super Bowl Sunday, February 1, 2004, Carly left her friend's house where she had stayed the night and headed for home where she had plans to watch the game with her family. She left her friend's home at 6.15 p.m. to begin the one-mile walk. Her friend's mother, Connie Arnold, had called Carly's mother to make sure it was okay for her to walk. Susan agreed, but didn't want Carly walking along the busy Bee Ridge Road and sent Stephen in that direction, hoping to intercept her. Sadly, he never found her. He returned home, and by 7.30 p.m., when there was still no sign of her, they called 911. The following day, around noon, police bloodhounds tracked Carly's scent to Evie's car wash at 4735 Bee Ridge Road. The dogs followed the scent behind the car wash where it suddenly vanished. Investigators noticed a motion-activated security camera at the back of the building, a spot neighborhood kids often used as a shortcut to the residential area behind it. The police then decided to contact the owner, Mike Evanoff, to inquire about the surveillance footage. Eighteen hours later, when investigators were finally able to view the footage, they were shocked to find that Carly's abduction had been caught on camera. As she walked west across the car wash property, a man suddenly approached her, grabbed her right arm, spoke to her for a few seconds, and then led her away, off camera, toward a Buick station wagon that was also seen on the tape. Police rewound the tape and saw a yellow Buick driving into the parking lot three minutes before her recorded abduction. The footage was immediately released to the media and an Amber Alert was issued for Carly. The video was also shown nationwide and spurred a massive search for the suspect. NASA even got involved. Their researchers used advanced image processing technology to enhance the recording by reducing image jitter. Meanwhile, several citizens had recognized the abductor as 37-year-old Joseph Smith. Smith was the father of three and a car mechanic with a long list of arrests for drug-related charges and one for kidnapping and false imprisonment. Investigators quickly tracked him down, but he provided an alibi for the time Carly was kidnapped. They also searched the room he was renting, but found no concrete evidence connecting him to her disappearance. 
However, it wasn't long before police learned that Smith had borrowed a yellow station wagon from his landlords on February 1st, like the one seen in the footage, and didn't return it until the following day. The landlord also confirmed that Smith had been wearing his uniform on the day Carly was abducted. Upon searching the car, investigators found two head hairs and seven fiber threads consistent with Carly and the clothes she had been wearing. Smith was then arrested for her kidnapping, but she was still nowhere to be found. In an attempt to find out where Carly was, they had Smith's brother speak with him. That's when he told his brother that he didn't remember much about that day because he was under the influence of drugs leading up to her abduction. However, he did remember something about strangulation in a church. Four days later, Carly's body was found in a field behind a church. Smith was then charged with murder, kidnapping, and capital sexual battery. DNA was found at the crime scene and matched Smith's DNA profile. Carly's dad, Joe, pleaded with then-Florida Governor Jeb Bush to investigate the judges who allowed Smith to remain free despite being arrested 13 times in Florida since 1993. Smith had been arrested in 1997 on kidnapping and false imprisonment charges, but was acquitted a year later. The year before Carly's murder, Smith had violated parole twice, but was still allowed to remain free. He also served 17 months in prison in 2001 and 2002 for heroin possession and prescription drug fraud. Interestingly, Smith encountered the police on the night of Carly's abduction. They had spotted the station wagon parked illegally under an overpass off I-75 and stopped to ask what he was doing. Smith said he went to pee and the cops let him go. The next morning, he showed up late for work and began repeatedly washing his hands and telling his boss that he might have to leave the state at any time. In the end, Smith was found guilty and sentenced to death. He then died behind bars on July 26, 2021. His cause of death was never released to the public. Smith is also suspected of being involved in the murder of 25-year-old Tara Riley, whose body was found in a retention pond behind a Walmart on Cortez Road in Bradenton, Florida, in March of 2000. His brother John says he witnessed Tara reject his sexual advances before her murder. Sadly, in 2017, Carly's mother, Susan, died from a heroin overdose. Gabriella Corrine Doolin was born on December 26, 2007, to parents Amy and Brian Doolin and went by Gabby. At the age of seven, Gabby was a cheerleader and a second-grade student at Allen County Primary Center living in Adolphus, Kentucky. On November 14, 2015, Gabby attended her brother Alex's youth football game at Allen County's Scottsville High wearing her pink dress. While at the game, she played hide-and-seek with friends near the bleachers. At some point during the game, Gabby went to the bathroom and never returned. After being gone for a bit, one of the kids decided to ask Gabby's mom, Amy, if she had seen her, which she had not. This sent Amy into a panic, and she frantically began searching for her daughter and notified the authorities. About 25 minutes later, Gabby was found in a creek about 400 feet from the football stadium. She had sadly been sexually assaulted, strangled, and drowned to death. 
After Gabby was reported missing, officials gathered everyone at the football game that night into the high school gym. Interviews eventually led them to believe that 40-year-old Timothy Madden, a married father and a former construction worker, may have been involved in her death. He had attended the game to watch his son play, but instead was seen playing hide-and-seek with children at the event. Several people saw him near the bathrooms, acting strange, and reported this to investigators. Police went to Madden's home and requested the clothes he was wearing that day. They quickly realized that his clothing and boots were stained with blood. However, Madden insisted they had the wrong guy. The items were then sent off for DNA testing. The day after Gabby's funeral, investigators received the results, and it matched Gabby's DNA. Amy told investigators that the families knew each other and Gabby was on the cheerleading squad with Madden's daughter and would have trusted him enough to go off with him. Even after the DNA results, Madden continued to claim he was innocent. What do you have to say about the charges you're facing? It's all bogus. I'm a very innocent man. They can ask anybody that knows me. Why did they connect you to this murder? Small town gossip. They said I fit the suspect. Do you know what that was? Six foot tall, brown, uh, brown coat, long beard. Pretty much that's all I knew about it. But then they, I knew they found the little girl's body later on that night and locked the played, uh, ball game down. Timothy Madden's son, Bradley Madden, was also arrested for repeatedly sending threatening messages to the Scottsville Police Department. Scottsville Police Chief Jeff Pearson called him and gave him a verbal warning after the first message. When the messages kept coming, police took a warrant out for Bradley Madden's arrest. He was picked up in Tennessee and extradited to Kentucky. Initially, prosecutors had considered the death penalty for this sick bastard, but that was taken off the table when Madden entered a guilty plea. During the sentencing phase after the guilty verdict, Amy addressed Madden, but he refused to acknowledge her and Gabby's father, Brian. Meanwhile, chaos quickly erupted in the courtroom between Gabby's parents and Madden and between other family and friends in the back of the courtroom. Brian was so angry that the judge instructed the bailiffs to escort Madden and Brian out of the courtroom. After the recess, the hearing resumed with Gabby's mother finishing her statement. A family member also made a statement on behalf of Madden, saying he was a loving person who was always there for their family. I'm sorry, but I have to break from this story and say that when you sexually assault and murder a little girl, you shouldn't be able to give this piece of shit any sympathy. Who cares what he did before this? Sorry, y'all, I'm just sick of families acting like their murderous family members are saints. Thankfully, Madden was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge said he likely would have sentenced Madden to death had the family not agreed to the plea deal, sentencing him to life in prison. In 2019, police performed an undercover sting known as Operation Gabby Doolin and arrested seven so-called men and federally charged them with sexual deviance involving minors. Riley Powell was born to Bill and Linda Powell on April 28, 1999 in Provo, Utah. 
At the age of 18, Riley Powell lived in the small town of Eureka, Utah, with his grandfather and girlfriend, 17-year-old Breland Otison, who went by Breezy. Breezy was born to Nanette Baird and Kenny Otison in Salt Lake City on January 27, 2000. She was said to have a larger-than-life personality who enjoyed music, baseball, swimming, and the outdoors. On December 29, 2017, Riley and Breezy were visiting friends around town. At some point, they ended up at their friend Morgan Lewis's house. After that, they were never seen alive again. As New Year's Day came and went, and no one had heard from Riley or Breezy, their families reported them missing on January 2, 2018. They initially feared the couple had gone off-roading and had an accident. They knew with the freezing temperatures that they wouldn't survive long if that were the case. So, a search involving multiple agencies and family, friends, and community members was organized. On January 9, 2018, a week after they were reported missing, Riley's Jeep was discovered close to Cherry Creek Reservoir, hidden by some trees with two flat tires. Inside the Jeep were their warm clothes and IDs, which deeply concerned investigators because these were important items that most people would take with them. Investigators also found a tie-down strap on the driver's side rear axle, suggesting the vehicle might have been tied down to a trailer. Closer inspection of the two flat tires revealed they'd been punctured, possibly by a knife or screwdriver. At this point, they were pretty sure foul play was involved. Investigators received a tip saying Breezy and Riley were in a mine. The only problem was that the county had more than 800 mines. Interestingly, a local came forward and reported seeing a green truck driven by Lee Shepard towing a vehicle like Riley's on New Year's Day. Shepard was dating Riley's mother, Misty Powell, who some felt wasn't all that concerned by the ongoing search efforts to find them. When police showed up at Shepard's home in Vernon, Utah, they noticed tie-down straps that matched the ones on Riley's car, further raising suspicions. But after a thorough investigation and running down every lead, detectives ruled him out as a suspect. Investigators then focused on Riley's bank records and phone activity, which helped determine his last purchase was at a 7-Eleven on December 29th. The couple's last communication was with Morgan Lewis, whom they had made plans to meet on the night of December 29th. Detectives entered her home, which she shared with her boyfriend, Jared Baum, and asked about the teen's whereabouts. The pair initially lied, telling police they didn't know the couple, but Facebook records showed they had exchanged several messages. When confronted with this information by detectives, Morgan admitted that she had known Riley for a short while, but that Riley and Breezy never made it to their house that night, and she didn't know where they were or what happened. Baum suggested the most ridiculous story ever. He said he heard rumors that members of the cartel had killed Riley and Breezy. At this point, Morgan and Baum were at the top of the suspect list, and in March of 2018, a simple traffic stop would break the case wide open. Morgan was pulled over for a traffic stop when the officer noticed spear-like weapons in her vehicle. She was then arrested on unrelated charges and proceeded to tell authorities where they could find Riley and Breezy's cell phones. She said they were in a sludge barrel on Baum's property and even took them to the location. 
Inside the barrel, investigators found several broken phones and some knives. She then refused to provide any more information, so they headed back toward the jail. As they were driving past the Tentic Standard Mine, they noticed she began to shake. On March 27th, investigators went to the mine with city sewer workers who hooked a camera to a cable and lowered it down 100 feet. That's when they discovered Riley and Breezy's bodies with their hands bound behind their backs. Sadly, they had both suffered fatal knife wounds. Morgan's guilt was more than she could bear, and she finally told investigators what happened. She said that Riley and Breezy had stopped by on December 29th while she was home alone. Unbeknownst to them, her boyfriend, Baum, had told her that she wasn't allowed to have male friends, especially Riley, since they had previously dated. While they were still there, Baum showed up and was furious. So he tied up the teens, duct taped their mouths, and drove them to a remote location in the Jeep. He then proceeded to beat up Riley before stabbing him to death and pushing his body down into the mine. He then murdered Breezy and pushed her into the mine as well. He then forced Morgan to drive Riley's Jeep to Cherry Creek. However, on the way there, his truck got stuck in the snow, which would explain the tie-down straps. After parking the Jeep, he slashed the tires in an effort to throw off investigators. The day after the gruesome discovery, Baum was arrested, charged with first-degree murder and other felony charges, and pleaded not guilty. Morgan was also charged with two second-degree felony counts of obstructing justice. In the end, 41-year-old Jared Baum was found guilty of aggravated murder, aggravated kidnapping, desecration of a body, obstruction of justice, and possession of a dangerous weapon by a restricted person. He was then sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. He wasn't allowed to possess a weapon because when he was 15, he walked into a Burger King and began shooting at employees while trying to rob the place. He was tried as an adult for the crime spree and an attempted murder charge. However, the murder charge was eventually dismissed. As for Morgan, she agreed to testify against Baum in exchange for a three-year sentence. In July 2023, the Tentic Standard Mine was officially covered. During the project, the state took extra care not to disturb the memorial left behind for Riley and Breezy. Rhonda Michelle Blaylock was born to Charles and Rebecca on November 9, 1965, in Forsyth County, North Carolina. In 1980, 14-year-old Rhonda lived in Rural Hall, North Carolina, which inspired the Mayberry town in The Andy Griffith Show. She was in ninth grade at Atkins High School in Winston-Salem and was described as kind, sweet, and shy. On August 26, 1980, a stranger offered Rhonda and her friend a ride from the local bowling alley, and they accepted. The truck appeared to be a late 1970s to early 1980s model with a broken passenger side wing mirror and a back set of snow wheels. The man was white in his 20s with feathered down brown hair just below the ears. The man told the girls to call him Jimmy but said those who knew him called him Butch. Rhonda's friend was dropped off safely just a few minutes later near a train track at the Pretty Road intersection. Rhonda, however, wasn't as lucky and never made it home alive. When she failed to show up, her parents quickly reported her missing. 
Three days later, Rhonda's body was found in a wooded area off Seacrest Loop Road in Pilot Mountain, near the Stokes County line along Groundhog Trail Road in an extremely secluded area. She had sadly been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Despite the detailed descriptions of the vehicle and suspect, the case went unsolved for over 40 years. Thankfully, evidence collected from the victim and crime scene had been well-preserved over the years. In 2015, her case was reopened once again, and the evidence was sent off for DNA testing. A DNA profile was created and linked back to 62-year-old Robert James Adkins, who lived mere miles away from the sheriff's office. On August 2, 2019, Adkins was arrested and charged with her murder. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 25 years behind bars. After the murder, Atkins went on to get married and had a child of his own. Sadly, Rhonda's parents did not survive to see the case solved. On July 26, 1974, 12-year-old Leslie Metcalf followed her barking dog in the Race Point Dunes of Provincetown, Massachusetts, and made a horrifying discovery. Lying face down on a beach blanket was the remains of an unidentified woman. Placed under her head was a blue bandana and a pair of Wrangler jeans. She had long auburn or red hair pulled back into a ponytail by a gold-flecked elastic band. She was estimated to have died two weeks earlier. Authorities determined the woman was between 25 and 40 years old. The official cause of death was blunt force trauma with signs of strangulation and sexual assault. Police ran the license plates of everyone who had visited the park around the time of her murder, but it never led to her killer. Eventually, the case went cold and would remain unsolved for decades. Unable to determine her identity, she became known as the Lady of the Dunes. Since investigators found the beach blanket undisturbed, they suggested that her body was possibly moved to the specific spot where she was found. Her body was exhumed multiple times for additional analysis and collection of evidence, including DNA samples. There were also multiple attempts at facial reconstructions over the years, and her skull even underwent CT scanning in 2010 in order to create a computer-generated facial reconstruction. In 2021, a portion of Jane Doe's jaw was sent to Othram Labs, and a DNA profile was created. Genealogists then got to work mapping out her family tree. Finally, on October 31, 2022, the FBI announced that the Jane Doe had been identified as 37-year-old Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee. Ruth was born on September 8, 1936, and moved to Michigan in 1957 after a brief marriage. The following year, she gave birth to a son whom her superintendent, Richard Hanchett Sr., adopted since she couldn't afford to care for him. Ruth then married Guy Rockwell Moldavin, an antique dealer in Reno, Nevada, in February 1974. The couple soon visited Ruth's family in Massachusetts during their honeymoon. During that visit, her family recalled that Moldavin seemed overly possessive of her. The couple spoke of their intention to travel around the U.S. hunting for antiques before returning to Massachusetts. That was the last time Ruth's family ever saw her. 
When Moldavin returned, he was alone driving their vehicle. He told her relatives they had a fight and that he had not heard from her since. However, he told others that she had passed away. Moldavin visited again later that summer to inform the family that Ruth had sold everything, joined a cult, and was missing. Moldavin had been married multiple times before he met Ruth. He moved from New York to Seattle with his first wife and got a job as a disc jockey. In 1956, the couple divorced. Two years later, he married Manzanita Ryan, who had a daughter from a previous marriage. Manzanita and her daughter disappeared in April 1960, and Moldavin briefly fled Seattle before being apprehended by the FBI. Investigators found body parts in Moldavin's septic tank, and they couldn't conclusively prove they were the remains of Manzanita and her daughter, and he was never officially charged with their murder. Moldavin married his third wife in 1960 and was convicted of defrauding her family out of $10,000, but received a suspended sentence in exchange for repaying them. Moldavin was also the prime suspect in the 1950 murder of a bread truck driver named Henry Bayard and his girlfriend, Barbara Kelly, in Eureka, California. Henry was found with a gunshot wound, and Barbara's body was never found. Barbara had worked at a restaurant owned by the parents of Moldavin's first wife, where Moldavin worked as a short-order cook. The restaurant was on Henry's truck route. However, there was insufficient evidence to charge Moldavin. Moldavin moved to a small town near Salinas in 1976 and remarried again. After retiring in 1985, he hosted a late-night local radio show and died in 2002 at the age of 78. In August 2023, Moldavin was officially named Ruth's killer and the case was finally closed. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.